Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. All right, so as I said, my name is Aki. I'm an alcoholic. Um, my sobriety date is October 6th, 2012. I feel like a motivational speaker right now with like the clip-on microphone. Anyways, um, okay, so uh, it's good to be here today. It's always good to be of service. Um, this really weird thing happens where, I, in my experience, where I ask, I get asked to speak somewhere, and then I get asked to speak again at another place and another place, and it's like this, like, this wave of, like, will you speak at my meeting? And so I'm in one of those waves right now, uh, which is really good because I'm super selfish, and I like to think about myself all the time, and uh, this is a way to do that a little bit less, uh, to come to a meeting and speak and, and try to share my experience. Uh, so I have, wow, 10 minutes. That's not very much time. Um, I really, really enjoyed getting loaded. Um, it was my sole purpose of living. Um, I don't know if anybody can relate to that, but I woke up every day excited to get loaded and did that all day long and then went to sleep and then did the same thing the next day. And I did that for a long time. And I know I'm young, but I did that for a really long time. And, um, it, I think, I don't think I need to go into it. Um, I think everyone can relate to how bad it was out there and what it's like to, you know, get messed up. Am I allowed to cuss here? Can they not cuss? <laughs> everyone knows, knows what it's like to get fucked up. Uh, I don't know. Some people get weird when you cuss at meetings. You got to be careful. Uh, so I, yeah, just chased drugs and alcohol to till I just couldn't anymore. And um, I always identify when people talk about being an alcoholic or, or feeling alcoholism before they actually put anything, any substance in their body. Um, I was super obsessive as a kid. Just so neurotic, like the most neurotic five-year-old ever. Like, I was just so selfish. Always just thought about myself. Uh, so the first time I got loaded, it was like, that was it. Like, I was like, oh, man, like, this is, like, perfect. Um, so, yeah, I just chased that um, through um, getting strung out at a young age, um, dropping out of high school, uh, missing out on most experiences that, like, a lot of people, um, a lot of teenagers and young adults had. I didn't really have those because I was like in a detox or a rehab or some sort of facility. That was really normal to me. Um, and so basically, uh, it sucked. And what happened was, is uh, I remember really wanting to be sober and not being able to do that. And I remember I would like, I would get a little bit of sobriety time when something like really bad would happen. And I had some extreme consequences and I would like write these lists where I would write like all the shit I was going to do and take care of and handle in my life. And I would, I would write these lists. that was like, 
Okay, get a car, get my own place, like, um, be normal, like, go get out the house, get a girlfriend, do these things. And I would like, I would make these lists of how I was going to get my, my shit together and I wouldn't be able to do it. I would just continue to get loaded. Um, because like for me, the feeling, like the feeling of being sober when, you don't want to be sober is literally like hell for me when I was out there. That was like, there was no worse feeling than, than being sober when drugs and alcohol were working for me. Cause I just felt so insane. And it just, I just remember how painful it was to be sober and like run out of whatever it was that I was, I was like accustomed to doing every day. And, um, that was just the worst feeling ever. And, uh, so I, I couldn't stay sober even though I wanted to. Um, I know that's a pretty common theme in AA from people, but I, uh, I remember that it, like I completely hit rock bottom. I'll save everyone the details of what that looked like. It was really ugly. It wasn't, it wasn't a <laughs> good, I didn't, uh, it wasn't very attractive, but I hit complete, complete rock bottom. Like I was writing suicide notes, like all this crazy stuff, like trying to kill myself, crying all the time. And, um, I ended up going to rehab in Montana. I went to like a wilderness therapy center place. Um, and it was so, it was so weird. That was the first time that I really like felt like alcoholism and addiction, like really like what it truly felt like, because I was like just wanting to die, trying to, you know, do all this crazy stuff, um, uh, completely des like desperate, hopeless, and then I go to this rehab center. I'm from, I'm from California and I go to this rehab center in Montana and I'm in there and I'm, I get like a week or two sober. Like I wanted to be sober so bad. And then one day I woke up and I was like, I cannot wait to get out of here and get loaded again. Man, that sounds so good. Like, oh my God, this sucks. And like, I had just wanted to be sober so bad, like the week prior. Um, and I know this is AA, but like, I like found some like roaches in my pocket, <laughs> like one of the pocket, like from some shorts that were, I had in my bag and I, like was like smoking roaches in the bathroom of a rehab center, like just so desperate. Like maybe this could still work, maybe like whatever. And that's crazy. Like what, like what the heck was I doing? It's like insanity, you know, that like really is insanity uh, to be getting like loaded in the bathroom of a rehab center. Like when I just tried to kill myself and all this stuff is crazy. Um, so, uh, what happened was, is I decided that I wanted to continue to live that way, but I would stay at the rehab center and I would, uh, work the steps because you had to work the steps to get out of the rehab center. It was like a weird lockdown-ish type facility where if you wanted to be released, you'd have to work your first, your first five steps. Um, so I totally bullshitted the counselor. I was like, I love being sober. Like, I'm going to be sober forever. Like, this is great. And the whole time in the back of my head, I was just like, uh, like, oh, man, I'm so finessy in this situation. Like, I cannot wait to get out and get loaded and all this stuff. Um, but I did my steps anyways. And um, that was the first time that I had the experience of, like, if you, like, do AA, like, it works. Whether you're, like, believing it or not, finessing it or not. Like, if you just work the steps, like, you get the solution like it works and so i worked the steps even though i was full of shit and it uh something changed in me where i was like 
I felt like relief. Like I remember leaving that first fit step, just feeling like, like, oh my God, like I never had felt like, never had true. That was like the relief I was chasing in like drugs and alcohol. Like when I left my first fit step, I was just like, man, I was all like spiritual. I was like looking at the mountains because I was in Montana. I was like looking at the trees. It was like such a cheesy moment, but like I felt so good. Um, and, uh, that was my first, like, real experience with AA and doing AA and, uh, the relief and, like, the solution that, that this place had because I grew up with, like, my grandpa doing AA and, and my mom, like, in and out of rehab and my dad in and out of rehab. Um, and, uh, so I, I saw AA growing up, but it was, it was a totally different experience to, like, feel actually what, this thing was about and like feel it in my life. And, uh, you know, I wish I could say that, that I stayed sober and I had this big miraculous, like God saved me and I stayed sober forever. And like, I was great, but uh, I stopped working the steps and I went back hanging out with the same people doing the same shit. And I relapsed. Um, but when I went to AA, it like taught me what to do. Uh, when I like, felt that desperation and I didn't know what to do. Like I learned to like go to meetings and like get a sponsor and like work the steps. And, um, and that's what I did. And, uh, actually have not relapsed since I worked all my 12 steps from start to finish. Um, and, uh, what it's like today, I have like three minutes. So weird to share for 10 minutes. Like it's such a weird time. You get like, but anyways, um, what it's like today is, um, what is it like today? <laughs> I didn't plan anything to say. I was just like, God's going to speak through me. I'm not going to plan what to say. No, I'm blinking. But what it's like today is, um, like a lot of, a lot of, of cool shit that I, man, like, all the lists I made when I was like out there and I was hitting rock bottom and all the stuff I wanted to accomplish, like is not even close to like the stuff that I've been able to do. Like in sobriety, it's crazy. It's like, it's so crazy. And I mean, there's no way I could be doing what I'm doing currently. If I wasn't sober, there's no way I could be at this point. If I wasn't sober, um, I found something that I just fell in love with in sobriety. I remember, you know, like in my first year of sobriety, I was like, I don't know what to do with my life. Like I'm sober. Like, what do I do? Do I just like just date a lot? Do I just like, I, I almost had my degree in psychology. Like I was like, and I was like, I'm not feeling this. Like personally, I wasn't feeling it. I was going to be a counselor. Um, and then I just like fell in love with making music, you know, and like just this like crazy passion for this thing that like I've been able to, to find because I was sober and because I was exploring life and having experiences and like, man, like, and then just chasing something I loved, like got me all sorts of just crazy stuff. Like I paid my bills with music. Like I got a scholarship to Cal for music, like all sorts of stuff. And I'm not like, I'm not trying to say like, Oh, I'm so tight. Like, but like I found something that I loved because I was sober and I just chased it and used all the, you get like superpowers when you're sober, like low key, like I'm serious. Like how like sharp and motivated and how many hours I have now to like just dedicate to like grinding on something and accomplishing goals is like so crazy. Like, 
And I never had that before. I never even was able to chase a goal when I was like out there, you know, I was just blowing it. Um, so yeah, uh, in the last 30 seconds, I can say that I'm not perfect. My life is not perfect today. Uh, I woke up like a little bit sad and I called my sponsor and he was like, yo, it's okay to be sad sometimes. Like just sit in that shit and go be of service and speak at the meeting. So I meditated and I made an amends and I came and spoke at the meeting and like, I feel a whole lot better. So, um, everything is not like crazy good. I still have financial problems. I still like anybody else, but, um, yeah, I just, man, like I like have the life that like I always wanted to have and like so much more, you know, like I'm not even going to use that cliche line of like beyond your wildest dreams. You live this, but like, that's just true, dude. Like if you stay sober and work the steps and like work on yourself, like, I've been able, I've been able, while my voice just cracked, like, <laughs> 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 um, I've been able to do some really, really cool stuff just being sober. So it's good to be here. Thank you. My name is Carol and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Carol. And, um, Zaki with a Z. That was amazing share. And I, it's so, I mean, I identify with everything you said and, um, how you started and how you ended up is pretty much the same story for me. So, um, I'll tell you what happened to me. <laughs> I think I was an alcoholic from a very young age. And I sometimes I think about it and wonder, like, what makes us become alcoholics? And I don't know if it was if I was born that way or if I became that way because my family thought it was okay to have little kids take sips of their drinks. You know, my family, everybody in my family drank. And I grew up just thinking that, Drinking alcohol was just normal, that everybody did it, and I thought people that didn't drink were weird, and I didn't want to have anything to do with anybody that didn't drink. But I remember just from, you know, two, three years old, having sips of whatever somebody was drinking, and and they thought it was cute because I'd make a funny face, and I don't know, it just made me kind of feel like part of, you know, and... Um, my parents were very young when they had me, so I was a little bit neglected. They kind of, I remember my mom telling me one time, children should be seen and not heard. And that, that stuck with me. And, I, um, after, you know, going through steps and stuff, and I realized that I probably was, um, neglected and have, you know, a lot of fear and, and shame and stuff that I have came from, you know, not being, not having the attention that children should have. Um, so I think that that was kind of, I wanted to be part, you know, whenever there was a party or something, I wanted to be with the adults and they were drinking. So I drank too. And then one time there was a party, I was 12. And I remember this because I remember clearly the craving for alcohol because my dad was having a party and everybody was drinking. And I just thought, well, if I just ask, maybe they'll let me have my own. So I asked for a drink, and my dad said, you can't drink. You have to be 21. And everybody <laughs> laughed. Oh, come here. You can have a sip of mine. So I went around to everybody, and I went to bed with that warm feeling that you get from drinking. And I was laying in bed. I was like, oh, I was so happy. I felt so grown up. And that 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, how am I going to wait till I'm 21? There's, I can't, I can't wait till I'm 21. So of course I didn't. I drank whenever I could get a chance. My dad actually had a 
keg on tap in the house all the time. So whenever he wasn't around, my brothers and sisters, we'd sneak some. And then when I got into high school, I was, you know, I got in with, well, I was in high school in the 70s, and it seemed like everybody was doing it then. Um, maybe that's not true, but it seemed like it. Because <laughs> there was always a whole bunch of kids, but, you know, big parties over at, uh, I went to high school in Marin in Mill Valley and, and um there always was big parties out at your beach or underneath the Golden Gate Bridge or, you know, some up in the Marin Headlands or somewhere. And it just seemed like everybody from school was there and other kids from, you know, the city and other places. And it was just that was my only ambition through high school was to party, to get to the best parties, to have the most fun, to hang out with the coolest people, the drug dealers, of course, you know. And um you know, when it it started. I started getting toward the end of high school, and people were starting to think about going to college, and I didn't. I didn't want to go to college. I wanted to be done with school. In fact, I managed to graduate a semester early. I don't know how, but I did, and I just couldn't wait to get a job and move out. On my 18th birthday, I was out, got my own apartment, got a job, and I was just going to party. That's all I really wanted to do. I didn't care about anything else because I was having fun, but... The problem, I wasn't a very good drinker. I was the kind of drinker that I guzzled from, you know, the beginning. I just would suck it down, and I would always go for the highest. 151 rum was something I liked to drink a lot. Then I would be sick, and I, I was, it was disgusting. I don't even know why my friends wanted to hang out with me, because they usually ended up you know, picking me up off the ground and dropping me off. One time they left me off on the front porch covered in puke, and my dad found me there and grounded me. And he grounded me for six months, and he said, you know, I'm not grounding you for drinking. I'm grounding you because I was scared to death that what if thinking about what might have happened to you. What if your friends didn't bring you home? They could have left you there or, or whatever, and who, all the things he was scared about. And he said, um, and I, I'm worried about the way you drink, so I'm going to keep you home and teach you how to drink like a lady. <laughs> and I remember getting little lessons of how to drink, you know, maybe you should just um, drink straight shots. Cause I used to like to mix drinks with all different kinds of things. And he said, maybe you just do like, you know, hot toddies, brandy, a little hot water, a twist of lime or, you know, and sip, sip your drinks. Don't guzzle them. And, Cause I used to like to put, you know, my friends and I, one of the things we do when we go out, we go, buy a bottle of booze we'd wait outside the liquor store and ask somebody to buy us some and then we'd go to jack-in-the-box and get cups full of ice you know the jumbo cups like this and make our drinks and that's what we did um so anyway i i I wasn't a very good drinker and so my friends thought well to keep me maybe from uh throwing up and passing out all the time maybe they should Turn me on to some little... I just remember, it's so clear in my mind, this little hand coming out. Try these. And there were uh, crosstops. We call them beans. There's basically speed is what it was. So I took one of those, and I didn't black out, and I didn't throw up. So that went hand in hand with my drinking till the end. Um, In fact, I think that uh, that's what kind of helped me get to the bottom faster. I don't know if, if I... Uh, would have went to treatment if it wasn't for all the speed I was doing. I ended up, um, so from high school to I was 34 years old, I hadn't accomplished anything. Um, 
I had a pretty good job. I don't know how. I guess I was a good employee sometimes. I remember my employment reviews were always kind of up and down, and they'd always tell me, it's like, you know, you're really good when you put your mind to it, but sometimes you do, you know, I would sometimes not show up to work, or I could never get on time to work. I was always late, and it was because I was out partying all the time, and um, sometimes I'd come to work still drunk from the night before, or even straight to work, and not even had been home, you know, wearing the same clothes I had on the day before, and um, I got to the point where I was leaving work for lunch to go get high, because I had to have, by then, I had to have, I was kind of, I heard someone share in in a meeting one time about better living through chemistry, and I got it, because I was like, yeah, that's what I had to do, because I'd have to drink a lot to come down, and then do speed, you know, during the day to get up, and then I wasn't even sleeping every night. I'd, you know, go like two or three days at a time and without sleep. And um, so, but I'd have, you know, I'd be at work and all of a sudden I was like, I have to go home. And, but then I wouldn't come back. And I really didn't think anybody noticed that I wasn't at work. That's how out of it I was. I I just wasn't thinking clearly. And and I was so self-centered and so in my own, you know, that I just, I didn't even know what was going on. But by then, I was in a lot of pain and a lot of fear, and I didn't even know why. I I was, um, you know, I realized that my life was going nowhere. I'd seen people that I'd grown up with that graduated from college and got married and had families and had good jobs and, did you know, all the stuff that people do in life, and I had none of it. And the partying was getting not really so much fun anymore because I was at this um, point where I needed... I, I mean, I was now I was like looking for the the right kind of effect that I needed to feel right, you know, if I needed to come down or come up or whatever. And I was miserable, and I didn't know what was wrong. I really didn't know what was wrong. And I mentioned to a friend, she was um, she was a friend that we both had boyfriends in in this band together. So her and I became very close, and our guys would go off to play a gig somewhere, and they wouldn't come home all weekend. And so her and I would be hanging out together, being high all weekend, waiting for the, you know, paging them. This is back in the pager days. They'd never answer. And I remember the house, I smoked cigarettes at the time, and my house being filled with smoke, you couldn't even see on the other side of the room because it was so smoky. Oh. And um, she decided that she needed to stop doing that life. She said, you know, I can't do this anymore. I'm getting too old. I, I just, you know, not not effective at work anymore. So she just quit. And I was like, okay. So I had to find another person to hang out with. And, and you know, and then, you know, how that story about seeking lower companions goes. And so I was doing that. And, but, so this, at this one point in time when I was in so much pain and I didn't know what to do, I called her up and I asked her for help. I said, I think something's wrong with me, and maybe you could recommend a psychiatrist for me. (laughs) And she said, well, you know, Carol, she said, "Um, nobody any good is going to be able to help you unless you get clean and sober first. And I said, okay. And I thought about it, and I was like, I didn't know what the hell she meant. I really didn't. I didn't have it. I was like, what? What's that got to do with it? Um, So I hung up the phone. I was like, all right. And of course I didn't, you know, the next day I was doing the same thing that I always do. And, um, I don't even know how many days passed, but I called her back again. And this time I cried and I said, I can't stop. And 
she said, okay, I've been waiting for this call. And she had the number for MPI. She'd already kind of looked into it and somebody told her about MPI. So she got the number and that whoever gave her that number said, Carol needs to make that phone call. Don't do it for her. And I think that's a really important uh, thing because I did call MPI and I didn't know what I was doing, what was going to happen, what MPI was. It was, I knew that it was um, a chemical dependency program. So I figured I'm going in for speed. I'm going to get off speed, right? I'm a drug addict. I have to stop doing that. So I call and the guy was really happy. Hi, what are you doing? And I said, I'm doing speed. And he goes, yeah, of course we can help you. Come on. So I went up there and, and I um, had an intake with this woman and I instantly fell in love with her. Her name was Kim. I don't know if anyone remembers her. And she was asking me all these questions, and I answered. And again, I had no idea what was going on. And then I, all of a sudden, I realized she was checking me in to like a 21-day inpatient. And I was like, oh, no, no. I can't do that. I, you, I, I can't. Nobody knows about this. I can't miss my job. I can't, you know. She's like, well. She said, okay, you know, we have an outpatient program. And I don't, I think you need to go in, but I'll let you come to the outpatient program, but we're going to test you randomly. And if you come up with the positive test, we're going to check you in. And I said, okay. So that was motivation for me to stay clean. And that's because that's what I thought I was there for is drugs, right? I didn't, alcohol never entered my mind. Um, I kind of had a feeling I maybe should cut back. And so I was started going to the group and I had this lovely little group of people, like five or six people in my outpatient group. And I went there four or five nights a week and, and it was great. I, it was my first feeling of, wow, there's other people like me that are, you know, this stuff that was going on with me that I didn't know what it was. Here I was sitting in a thing and everybody was having trouble and um, different, you know, there were some people that were drug addicts and some people were alcoholics. And so after, I don't know, a couple weeks, I thought it was nice to mention that what a good job I was doing with my drinking, that I wasn't drinking too much. I was only having one or two glasses of wine. And I thought I was so proud of myself. I thought that was a good, a good accomplishment. And then the counselor said, whoa, whoa, wait, you're not supposed to drink while you're here, you know. And I said, well, why not? I don't have a problem with alcohol. And she said, okay. And then she was doing this writing on the thing. And um, they went on to the next person. And I, and then that evening, one of my, uh, one of the people in my group invited me. Because up to that point, I was part of our uh, program was to go to 12-step meetings. So I was going to NA because I thought that's where I belonged. But then one of my friends asked me he was like the only that never used drugs just alcoholic and he goes well maybe you should come to an aa meeting with me I don't know about that I don't know something about alcoholism was it was weird to me so but I went and I went to Piedmont up in the hills because I I live in Alameda and I didn't want to go anywhere near an aa meeting where I live I didn't want to see have anyone see me walk in right um I don't know anyone in Piedmont, so I went up to a meeting up there, and the woman that was telling her story, I was captivated because she was telling her story that was everything like me, like I, 
understood how she felt and what she did. And I was like, yeah. And then she got to her recovery part and how recovery had changed her life. You know, doing the steps, having a sponsor. And I was like, wow. So that was attraction rather than promotion. So then I kept coming around. And I never introduced myself in my first 30 days because I really wasn't, I wasn't signing up for AA. I didn't want anyone to to talk to me. I'd show up and like sit in the back and listen to the uh, speaker and everybody shares and identified with everybody, but I didn't want to do, I saw those and I went, Oh no, you know, the higher power stuff. I was like, I was afraid I was going to be brainwashed into some kind of a cult and I didn't want to have anything to do with that. So, but I kept coming back because I was trying, I mean, I was identifying, I was hearing and I was hearing people's lives change. And I was like, I wanted, I wanted what they had so bad. Um, and then I started going to, then, well, okay, I have a long time, so I, I can tell about my relapse story. I always forget and leave this part out. Um, so right at the end of my outpatient program, I was feeling really good. I was happy. Everything was great. And I was getting ready. We had this little graduation ceremony and uh, at MPI, and I knew it was happening like the following week. And for some reason, when I left my group Friday night, instead of going home to the right, I went left to this old drug dealer's place where I used to go. And I just walked in there and I was like, but with blinders on, wasn't even thinking about it. I just went and he was busy painting a car or something. And I said, hey, and I, you know, um, went right to where Stash was. I knew where it was and I got it out and I was like a fiend and I started, you know, and I got a Budweiser, which I hate Budweiser, but it was there and it just, you know, like it goes hand in hand. So I popped the top and I sat down on the table and I was like, you know, doing the stuff and got my beer over here. And then I had this little moment of, you know, that light bulb right here with the, oh, this is what they mean by powerless because I didn't plan this and I don't, I didn't feel, I wasn't craving or feeling bad or there was no reason for me to be doing that. But there I was. And I thought, oh, I'm powerless. And that was a really important thing for me. I didn't I didn't know that that was important at that moment, but I was already there, so I said, fuck it, and I went ahead and did it. <laughs> <laughs> so I did the whole weekend with the using and the drinking, and then by Sunday night, I was laying on my couch, and I felt like shit, and I felt really ashamed of myself. I'm like, what the hell? And I, I had that moment that um, it talks about in the big book about I think it's called the jumping off place where we have to decide, are we going to have a life of misery or a life of spirituality? You know, what are our, what's our choice to be? I was having that moment. Like it was a scary choice because the this, this recovery choice was completely unknown and, and fearful. And the, the life of misery was familiar and come, there's something comfortable about it being familiar. I, I don't know how to explain the comfort of it all. Cause I felt like shit, but it was a familiar feeling like shit as opposed to a completely f- fearful unknown. And I re- was thinking about that. And then I, I grabbed my phone and I called a couple people from my group and I told them what happened and they were right there at my door and took me to a meeting that was Sunday night. And then Monday went back to my group and I was shaking cause I had to tell the counselors what had happened. And so, you know, we did our little circle and when it came to me and I, you know, I was like sweating and cold, you know, 
And I said, well, I relapsed. And, and she looked at me like, you know, she says, that's great. What did you learn from it? And I was so excited to be able to say, I learned from that I'm powerless. And that was all. And then I went on to the next person and it was huge for me. So that was the beginning. I didn't, that was my, um, so my sobriety date is March 5th, 1995. I checked into treatment in the beginning of January and then, um, March 5th was my, I guess it must have been an eight week program. And then March 5th, that, that week, uh, weekend and first weekend of March was when I had that relapse. So, um, now let's see back to where, where was I after the relapse? So, oh, so then I started, then I was like, okay, then I was, um, going to AA meetings at that point. And there was, I started going to Alameda because now I'm like, okay, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm not so worried about whatever people seeing me or whatever. I was going at night too. There was always a lot of eight o'clock meetings. There's not so much anymore. I don't know why everything changed, but this was back in 95 and most meetings were at eight o'clock at night. And I was going to a Sunday night at Park Street Fellowship and the cutest guy was the secretary. And he was talking about the AA International Convention that was happening in San Diego. And he was talking about it like it was the greatest thing. And he said, there's people from all around the world and, you know, alcoholics having a good old time. There's dancing and meetings all weekend long and there's thousands of people. And he made it sound so much fun. And I was like, well, if he's going, I'm going. So I was talking to a friend of mine who I'd grown up with. I used to party with in high school and he was in treatment over in Marin. And he said, hey, did you hear about that thing in San Diego? And I said, yeah. He said, you want to go? I said, yeah, let's go. So we, that was where I had my, my spiritual experience. So I was having a fun time and I was meeting people from literally all around the world. There was 87,000 people at this convention. San Diego ran out of coffee. <laughs> Seriously, for real. And, and, um, and the big meeting at the stadium, there was like four cops for, all these people at the stadium and the cops had nothing to do. And they were like, yeah, man, this, you know, we got, I mean, there was no trouble at all with this many people. And so the very last meeting on Sunday, it was, um, they had like this little international thing where like different countries, they have a representative carry the flags, like this little procession. And, and then they, um, I think it was the old timers meeting. I, I kind of forget cause I was sitting way in the back and I was in a stadium. I think at that last meeting, they counted 65,000 people or something like that. And I was way in the back. And at the end of the meeting, everybody held hands to say the Lord's prayer. And I didn't know it. So I wasn't saying it, but I felt it. And I was, you know, 65,000 people saying it. And I was looking over the stadium filled with people saying that. And I, I realized that what all those people had that I didn't was a higher power. I was like, wow. I want what those people have. So, and I had been to enough meetings up to this point to know that if I wanted to get what those people had, I'm going to have to get a higher power and I'm going to have to work the steps and I need to get a sponsor. So in my mind, I was like, okay, where do I sign up? I'm going to do this. I'm joining AA. So I came back from San Diego and the first meeting that I went to when I got home was in Alameda. And the first woman that put her hand out and said, hi, I asked her to sponsor me. And, um, she had never sponsored anyone before. So she was a little leery. So she kind of asked a couple of the old timers in Alameda 
that helped her get sober sponsor me. So I kind of had this little group sponsoring thing going on, which was wonderful. Um, they told me, don't worry, we'll love you till you learn to love yourself. And I just wanted to cry because I didn't even realize that I didn't love myself. Um, I didn't even know, you know, I, I had never felt so much love that I had from that little sober community in Alameda. And we went to meetings every single night and we used to go to the, you know, a bunch of people would carpool out to the big speaker meeting in Danville. And sometimes we'd go to Petaluma or down a daily city. I don't know, just like all over the place for meetings and dances, lots of dances. And I went on a sober vacation, uh, cl a club. It was a, at a club med. There's a couple guys in, um, LA that one is a AA and one is a NA, I think, or CA or something brothers. And they started this, uh, vacation thing called sober vacations and they do club meds and they do cruises and they do golf trips and riverboat things. And well, anyway, um, I went on one in Turks and Caicos. I had two years sober and they have like the big circuit speakers on this vacation. Every night there's a big speaker meeting. Uh, father Tom was doing mass on the beach. I didn't do that cause I'm not a morning person, but like every morning, <laughs> For the morning people, every 7 a.m., people go down to the beach for mass with Father Tom. And then and then during the day, you could do meetings or you could go out and do vacation stuff. And the, one of the cool things about Club Med is when they when you go and eat in the big dining room, they have these big round tables that are like 8 to 10 people that sit them. They don't let you sit with your friends. They let you They seat you, and they want you to mix it up and sit with different people. So I got seated right next to Dr. Paul, and he's the one that wrote the Dr. Alcoholic Addict in the big book, which actually they changed the name to some other name of the story. And I always forget what the new story name is, but it's the story about the doctor who um, writes the part about acceptance with his wife. Anyway, so I, here I am sitting next to him. And I was like, it was like a celebrity, you know, in AA. <laughs> and um, so uh, it was really cool. You know, he talked to me a lot about recovery and, and, um, you know, getting a sponsor. I don't, th wait a minute. Did I have a sponsor at that point? Yeah, no, that was two years. I did have a sponsor. I think it was that at that point when I was, um, that sponsor wasn't working for me anymore and I was ready for a new one. And anyway, I've, I've had several sponsors. Um, so what I learned in, for, from sponsorship for me is the first sponsor that I had, she walked me through the first three steps, which were huge. Um, getting a higher power was the most, I think, important thing in my life. Um, I rely heavily on my higher power today. And, um, but then when it came to doing the fourth step, I think that's why I stopped with working with her. I was in a lot of fear about doing that. And it took me a couple of years. I don't think I did the fourth step until I had four years of sobriety. And I don't know why I was in so much fear. Because once I did it, it, like you were talking about the relief, I had so much relief. I was like, damn, why didn't I do that sooner? And... Um, you know, and that was so heavy of that fourth and fifth step that when I was done with there, I kind of felt like I was done with that woman and I needed to move on and, you know, have somebody fresh. And, and I've learned that, uh, you know, different people have different things, different experiences and different things to give. And so I just try to get whatever uh, I can get. I just started working with a new sponsor now. I have 23 years and I started working with a man this time. There's a man in Alameda that's got a lot of years and he sponsors a lot of people. And I was like, well, I want to do whatever he's, you know, what he's doing. So I'm working with him now and I'm on a four step. <laughs> 
And, um, and I still got fear about that. You know, it, the fears are a little bit different, uh, cause I know how to look at my part and stuff. Now the fear is like making amends. And, um, even though I know that doing that is, uh, amazing and I've had some really powerful experiences with amends, people that I never thought I could ever face again, or that I thought had done more harm to me than, than I had done to them. When I did it, it was, um, extremely powerful. So anyway, um, I got to, in sobriety, I got to raise a child and I, I, I think about this a lot, you know, when I think about how I became an alcoholic, I'm not really sure if I was born that way. If I, so anyway, there's a 50, 50 chance that my son could be. So I was always conscious of that. So when he was a baby, I never let alcohol touch his lips. One time when he was teething, his father's family, we were there for Christmas Eve and he was screaming his head off cause he was teething. And they were like, Oh, put some whiskey on his gums. I was like, no, I had to like take my baby and go hide out and, the back room to keep them from putting whiskey on my baby's lip on his gums, you know? And, um, so I, you know, I just always was really conscious about not letting him, you know, there's no reason I used to argue with his father about it. There's no reason why he needs to have a sip of your beer or someone's champagne. It's like, no, wait till he's grown and then he can decide. So anyway, before my time is up, I just want to share about the higher power thing, because like you were saying, Zaki, about, um, having the life beyond your, so I got to raise my kid. He grew up, he's, he's not into drinking. He's in college right now. He's doing great. He's super smart. He's super talented. He's a musician too, but he's studying engineering. Um, and I, that was the greatest, you know, I was like, that was a gift from God. 18 of the best years of my life. Well, now he leaves me and I'm like, now what, what am I going to do? And I was so bummed out. I had this hole in my heart and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And I started thinking about it and what do I love? I love music. And that was one of the things I was going to miss when he left. Cause I was really involved in, in all his music stuff. And I've always loved taking pictures. So I went and bought a camera and I'm taking pictures at concerts and it turns out I'm pretty good at it. And I, I never really, um, thought that I could do that, but I just started doing it. Well, then I got invited to shoot a concert down in Long Beach last weekend. And I thought, Oh, so I went and I rented this big fancy, this big lens. It was like this big. Cause I called and I said, what do I need? I'm going to shoot a concert and I need something for low light. And so the, he recommended this lens. I went and I got it and I got filled with so much fear. I was like, what the hell am I doing? I don't know what I'm doing. Who do I think I am? And I was really consciously aware of the fear trying to stop me. And I just kept pushing through it and asking God for help and thanking God for the opportunity. And it was just like a really conscious contact with God. And it came off really well. And they want me to do it again. And I'm going to get to go do more things. I got invited by someone else who has a different group that is doing a show that wanted me to come and take pictures. And I was like, I like you. I'm like, damn, (laughs) who knew that life was going to... I mean, it is beyond my wildest dreams. That's what I feel like. What, you know, you say it sounds corny, but I would have never thought that I had the courage to just walk through the fear and do do stuff. And if you're sober, you know, you do a good job. Somebody told me about about me that why they like me is because I show up and I deliver. And I thought about that. And it's like a lot of people in the music industry, they don't really just show up and deliver because they're, you know, 
you know what they do. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, um, well, that went by really fast. So that's it for me. Thanks. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.